welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. Romans 6, 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as an obedient slave, you are a slave to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we uh, we come before you with very grateful hearts for the opportunity even to be together. And thank you for this, all the effort, all the work that goes in, all your people that have served to, to make this possible. We thank you for your word, that we can open it together that it's something that we can all look at and discuss and debate and go back and forth with, that we have this objective standard that you've left us. We're not left in the dark to depend on our own ideas, to bend on our own whims of our feelings. But Lord, you've given us your truth here. And we just pray as it's opened up, Lord, we pray that your spirit would move through me to communicate it rightly and would move through your people to make their hearts fertile soil for it. And we pray for anyone that's here that's, that's not a Christian, that has not yet been born again. We pray, Lord, that just as this wind is blowing through here, Lord, that your spirit would blow through here and cause them to be born again to this living hope. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this next six weeks, in this six weeks between Easter and Ascension Sunday, we're in Romans 6 through 8. We're not doing all of Romans 6 through 8 during that time. We'll get to the very beginning of Romans 8 because we're going to spend a long time in Romans 8. But we're going to be looking at how Jesus' cross and resurrection frees us from habitual sin. So that's the game plan. And remember, I don't know if you guys remember last week, I gave an acronym VIM, V-I-M. And it stands for the three things that we really need to keep in mind if we're going to walk in freedom from habitual sin. And the V is vision. The I is intention. And the M is means. Vision. We need to have a biblical vision of the kind of freedom that God offers us from habitual sin. Because it turns out that we don't naturally believe what's in the beginning of Romans 6. We don't naturally believe that we can be set free from habitual sin. But Romans 6 tells us that we can. And so we need to believe that vision. We did that last week. That's first 14 verses of Romans 6. We need intention. And by intention, I mean we need to truly intend to live in freedom from sin. We have to have a true intention to do it, true repentance. 
And we're going to look at that this week from the second half of Romans 6. And then we need to go about it by the right means. So you have the vision for change. You have the true intention to change. And then you have to rely on the right power sources to change. And we're going to look at next week we'll be in Romans 7 to see that's like not the way to do it. That if you take the route of Romans 7, you won't walk in freedom. And then we're going to look two weeks from now in Romans 8 and see the answer of what means we do. Does that make sense? You know, vision, intention, and means. This is really important. This is really helpful. I found it very helpful because if either for yourself or a person that you might be counseling or discipling, if they're stuck in habitual sin, it's probably one of those three things. Is it, do I really believe I can be set free from this sin? Do I really believe the first half of Romans 6? Do I really intend to leave this sin? And am I going about it by the right power source? So that'd be the kind of the main three things you want to look for. So it's very equipping too to do this. So this morning, we're going to look at intention, the I and vim, intention to change. Do we really want to be free from habitual sin? Not everybody, guys, that is even very miserable in their sin wants to be free from it. You guys have probably encountered that. Not everybody that is miserable in sin actually wants to be free from it. There's a really interesting exchange that Jesus has with a paralyzed man in John 5. He comes to this pool. There's a paralyzed man next to the pool. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus comes up to him. And he asked him a very strange question. Do you wish to be well? It's kind of an interesting question. You know, you think like, that's a strange question. This guy's been paralyzed for 38 years. And he asked him, do you wish to be well? Do you want to walk? Right? And I thought that was such a strange question until you start to think about it. Actually, there could be several reasons why that man may not want to walk. He may say he wants to walk, but he might not want to walk. It's the same with habitual sin. Not everybody wants to be well. Not everybody wants to be free from it no matter how much misery it causes. And you guys have seen this in your life. I mean, in the Bible, King Saul is a great example of this. Many times, Saul seems sorry. He seems like, I'm done with my sin. I, I've really learned my lesson now. And then what? Right back to it. You know, just like the Proverbs say, returning to, like a dog returns to its vomit. I know you guys probably know people like this in your own life. They're the people that you say, that person really needs to hit rock bottom, but they never seem to, no matter how far they fall. And so to be set free from habitual sin, you have to really want to be set free. You have to intend to be set free. Now, the, the biblical word for that is repentance. You have to really intend to leave it. You really have to hate it. That's the important thing. I don't know if you guys realize that. To be free from a particular habitual sin, you have to hate the sin. You can't kind of want to just manage it, you know, or keep it around as a pet. You have to hate it. And that's what Paul's doing in this section in Romans 6, 15 through 23. He's like a master surgeon and he's removing this tumor from our heart and he's going after every tentacle to try and take out every single part of that tumor. And this time he wants to help us to hate our habitual sin. And so he does that by showing us one, that it's slavery. And then he does it by showing us the terrible fruit it has. So first, let's look at that it's slavery. Our text tonight starts with a question that sounds just like verse 1. So in verse 1, he said, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, our first verse is, what then? Are we to continue in sin because we are not under law but under grace? Those two questions sound really similar. In the first case, in verse 2, Paul said, no, we shouldn't continue in sin that grace may abound. He says in verse 2, how can we because we've died to it. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? And what he said last week is he said, you know, how can you? You're actually united to Christ. You've actually died to it. You can't continue in it. God has done something to you when you came to Christ to unite yourself with him so that you have the power to leave it, the power to be free from it. Now, tonight, he gives a little bit different answer. Look at verse 16. 
the answer to the question, are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? He answers it this way in verse 16. By no means do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as an obedient slave, you're a slave to the one you obey? He gives a different answer here. The answer is, you know it's slavery, right? That's his answer. It's like, should we continue in sin? He's like, you know habitual sin is slavery, right? Jesus said a similar thing in John 8. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Habitual sin is slavery. And I know if you're here and you're not a Christian tonight or your sin is very much hardened to you, you might have the objection to this. You might say, hey, whoa, I'm not a slave. The things that I do habitually that you call sin, I call freedom. This is stuff I want to be doing. I want to do this stuff. I'm not a slave. To which I'd say, okay, quit for a year. Try quitting for a year. If you like it so much, you're not a slave, quit for a year. And to which you'd probably respond, I don't want to. To which I would say, that's because you're a slave. Okay? You say, I don't want to. That's because you're a slave. Guys, true freedom is to desire to do what is right, which is defined by God's word. True freedom is the desire to do what is right and the ability to do it. If you're lacking either of those, then you're a slave, okay? It's the desire to do what is right and the ability. The fact that you answered, I don't want to stop, is, some, is saying that you don't even have the desire to do what is right. That is slavery. Because slavery to sin, guys, is different than physical slavery. Physical slavery enslaves your body. Spiritual slavery enslaves your will. It enslaves your desires. It enslaves your loves and your wants, Listen to Martin Luther from Bondage of the Will. So Martin Luther, by the way, this is the uh, 500th anniversary of when he gave that Here I Stand speech, right? Diet of Worms, 500 years ago today. Okay, so Martin Luther wrote a book called Bondage of the Will, and he said this, a man without the spirit of God does not do evil against his will under pressure as though he was taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged to it like a thief being dragged to judgment. No, he does it spontaneously, voluntarily, and his willingness and volition is something that he himself cannot in his own strength eliminate, alter, or restrain. What he's saying there is that people that are enslaved to sin that aren't believers, they do it willingly, and that will is enslaved. That is slavery. Slavery to sin is a slavery of your will, a slavery of your desires, that you actually desire to keep on doing something that is not only wrong, but is out to destroy you. And here's the thing, guys. Everyone is enslaved to something or someone. You guys realize that? And that includes all of us. Every single human being is enslaved to someone or something. And that's actually by design. That's not because of the fall. That's by design. God has designed us in our hearts with a throne in our hearts. And something or someone will reign on that throne all the time. Of course, that throne is designed for God to reign in. But if he's not reigning in there, something or someone will reign in there. And guess who can't reign on it? You. Okay? Someone's going to reign on it, and it's not going to be you. We're all enslaved to something or someone, either to God or to idols. If God doesn't sit on there, something else will. Idols, guys, are usually good things that we've made ultimate things. They're usually things that, that, are, that are not bad things in and of themselves, but we've made them our gods. Typical core idols are things like, some people's idol is control. Anybody got an idol of control? You know, we don't do that right now, I guess. Uh, Gabe, I hear your idol control. I raise you an idol of control as well. Pleasure would be a, a core idol. Approval of others. Anybody have a core idol of approval of others? Comfort. Power, 
right? And some of those have overlaps. But underneath every single habitual sin, everything that we're constantly getting sucked into, there's an idol underneath it being worshipped. And so it's really important when you think about habitual sin, if you're dealing with it now or you've dealt with it before or you're on guard for it to come back, is to think about what's the core idol you're serving. That's the sin that you need to repent of. That's the sin you need to hate. And, and we can pray, guys. We can pray and ask God what it is. If we're not sure why we keep on practicing a particular sin over and over again, we can ask God. Psalm 139, you know, Lord, search me and know me. Show me if there's any evil way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Idols have symptoms. I've got this question in the back of my Bible that I'd written to myself. And the question is this, what do you want so badly today that it is making you depressed, anxious, covetous, bitter, or angry? What is making you sick of soul? That's the idol you need to repent of today. Pray and confess it to your father. Idols have symptoms, guys. And there's idols underneath every single habitual sin. And what's cool, though, is that we do have that. Because we have that throne in our hearts, if we exchange who's on that throne, those idols can be dispersed. Like, since there's a throne in your heart that's never vacant, the way to remove idols from it is to have the right master back on it. Take a look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are now committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Guys, when Jesus reigns on the throne of our hearts, he will send away those idols that we were enslaved to. And Jesus is the best master. I think before you were Christians, you probably resisted the idea of having Jesus as your master. Jesus is the one who rules your life. But guys, Jesus is the most amazing master because his service is freedom. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus said this. Listen, this is an invitation to you. If you're not a Christian yet today, or if you are and you've strayed from him, or if you haven't strayed from him and you just need to hear this again, this is an invitation from Jesus. He says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke, his yoke is his teaching, his yoke is his commandments, his yoke is his way of life. And if you were to come to Christ and he be your master and he would put his, his way of life upon you, you're going to find it to be light and easy as you abide in him. And the reason why is because Jesus is the only master that's actually offered to live through us. He's like, come and follow me. I'll be your master, but guess what? I'm going to live through you. I'm going to empower you to live. And that's why his yoke is easy and his burden is light is because he'll carry it with us. He'll live it through you. And we can see that in the, the only command in the text, which is in verse 19. Take a look. He says, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That's the only command in our text. And the command is to present your members for God to live through you. And we talked about this last week. That's abiding with Christ language, that we ask him to live through us. We hand over our thoughts. We hand over our emotions. We hand over our bodies. We hand over our whole selves to him. We say, Jesus, live through me work your commandments through me. It's amazing, guys. I mean, Jesus is the only master who works in and through his people. In a sense, he serves his people by living through us to make us able to do the things he's commanded. You don't have to carry it alone. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light as we abide in him. So to those who are hesitant to leave their sin, 
Paul tells him this. He says, don't you see it's slavery? Isn't that great? So that's the first thing he says. He says, they're like, I don't know if I want to leave this. I don't know if this is something I really want to let go of. And he's like, this is slavery. You got to be free from this. The next thing he does, which I think is so great, is he says, hey, um, how is that sin going for you? That's the next question that he asks. Take a look at verse 20. Paul seems to imagine that there's some resistance here. And he says in verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. It seems like he's imagining somebody saying, you know, I'm not so sure about this slave to God thing. I mean, especially in our culture where our idol is freedom, you know, to say you're going to be a slave to God. It's like, I don't, I don't think I want that. I want to be free. I don't really want to be a slave to God. And Paul here is basically saying, you know, it is true that you were free from God when you were a slave to sin. But then he goes, at what cost? Really? At what cost? He wants us to look at the cost. Look at verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now shamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. He's saying, look at your habitual sin and ask the question, and whether you're, you're in it now or you've been in it in the past, you could certainly answer it with past sin. He says in verse 21, what fruit were you getting? Isn't that a great question? How was it going for you? This is the classic Dr. Phil question, right? You know, so somebody comes on Dr. Phil, not that I'm a normal Dr. Phil watcher, but somebody comes on the show, kind of tells them all about all the stuff they're engaged in and kind of how they're living their life. And then he says, how's that working out for you? To which the question is always like, terrible. Like, this is terrible. This is going terribly, right? And that's what Paul's doing here is he's saying, how did it go for you? How was it? If you're going to truly intend to leave your sin, you have to hate it. And to hate it, you have to see what it's clearly out to do. And what sin is clearly out to do is destroy you. Like, that's what sin's about. Sin's about destroying you. Sin is actively working to destroy you. Look at verse 19. Habitual sin always wants more control over you. Take a look at verse 19. It says that you were slaves of impurity to, leading, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, right? Isn't that the way sin is? Sin's never like, okay, 20% of control of your life's fine. I'm good with that. No, sin always wants more, right? Sin always wants to take more territory. It always wants to take more control of us. Lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Habitual sin's fruit is death. Look at verse 21. It says, for the end of those things is death, and this isn't overstating the case, okay? That sin leads to death. Sin is out to kill you. It is not your friend. It has not come to bring you joy. Sin is out to kill you. It's out to kill your joy. It's out to kill your peace. It's out to kill your hope. It's out to kill your love. It's out to kill your friendships. It's out to kill your witness. It's out to kill your marriage. It's out to kill your family. Sin leads to death. And I think a lot of times we're like, well, maybe it's not that. No, that's exactly what it is. Sometimes we think we can kind of keep a little bit of sin kind of around like as a pet, right? We're just going to keep a little bit of it. You know, we're going to keep a, a little lust. We're going to keep a little envy. We're going to keep a little resentment, right? We're going to keep a little bit of pride. We're going to just keep a little bit of judgmentalism. We're going to keep a little anger, you know, to taste on later because it tastes good. We're going to keep a little discontentment. We're going to keep a little superiority. Guys, sin is not a pet. It cannot be managed. It cannot be tamed. You can keep a little bit of sin around like you can keep a little rattlesnake around or a little bit of cancer. 
right? These are things you don't keep around. Sin is one you don't keep around. John Owen said in his amazing book, Mortification of Sin, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Anybody can testify that sin's out to kill him? Everybody agree? I, I think we've all been bit by it, right? You live long enough as a Christian, like you know this, you know that there's this wreckage that it wants to leave in your life. And there's nothing freeing about sin, guys. You might say, well, you know, it's freedom from God. I felt free from God when I was apart from him, you know, free from him telling me what to do. Fine, you know, Paul says that that's a kind of freedom, sure. But it's a freedom to destroy yourself. That's what it is. It's enough rope to hang yourself. Sin gives us freedom the way dry land gives a fish freedom from water. It's freedom to die. It's freedom to be gutted and eaten. Guys, sin is a cruel master. It doesn't even pay well in this life. And it certainly doesn't pay in the next. Verse 21. This verse is so great. This is the how is it going for you. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? This is a beautiful question. The end of those things is death. Paul wants us to do a little bit of accounting here and kind of add up what sin's gotten us. You know, how'd it go? You know, and we need to do this because we're really stupid. I mean, we really are. Sin makes us stupid. There's a, the uh, noetic effect of sin, which is, is a, like sin makes us dumb. And sin makes us stupid because sin lies. It promises joy. It always pays death. And so a bit of homework, if you're currently dealing with habitual sin or, you know, you could save this for some time when you are fighting it out. Here's a bit of homework. Make a column of all the things sin promises you, that particular sin. What does it promise you? And then make a column of the things you consistently get from it. <laughs> right? We need to see it on paper. We're not smart. We need to see this is what it promises. This is what it gives. You use scripture and you can certainly use your own personal experience to write the second column. We need to do this guys, because for some reason, I clue myself in this, we're willing to believe the same lies over and over again. Isn't that true? That's how habitual sin does its thing is that we fell for it again. It's like a door to door salesman, right? Rings your bell. Gives you a sales pitch on the joy and happiness it's going to give you, right? You buy it. Salesman leaves. You realize you've been lied to. There's a bunch of destruction. And then the next day at the exact same time, the bell rings again. You're like, oh, who are you? Oh, I'm a salesman. This is what I'm selling. Well, what is it? Well, let me tell you about it. Oh, yeah, I'll buy that. We do it over and over again. It's bizarre. And that's why I think it's really helpful to write it down. <laughs> like write down what it tends to promise you and then write what happens. So when the bell rings, you'd be like, wait, I think I've done this before. You know, I think I've heard these lies before and I don't think it went well. Let me go back to my journal and take a look at this. You know, guys, we should be angry by now at our sin. We should be mad. You'd be mad if the same salesman was ripping you off. You'd be mad at yourself. Of course, you'd be mad at the salesman as well. We should be angry. We should hate our sin. And a list like that could be super helpful. Guys, sin lies. It promises life, but it pays in death. And what's beautiful, look at verse 23, is that Jesus does the opposite. He takes the wages of our death, the wages of our sin, which is death, and he gives us life. Take a look at verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus took the wages of our sin that we deserved, and then he gives us the gift of life he deserved. Guys, Jesus is a better master. There's like no competition here. And you're like, I want sin as my master. I want Jesus. And yet this is a decision we're trying to make. <laughs> you know, it's a very strange thing. We're like, I'm not sure yet, you know? And every time we come back to our habitual sin, we've made that choice, which is strange. 
You, don't you want to shake yourself? I want to shake myself. Can you shake yourself? I don't know. Maybe somebody can shake me. Guys, Jesus is a better master. His service is freedom because he actually will serve himself through us, right? And when we fail him, he promises to pay our debt. There's no master like that that actually will serve through us. And when we fail him, he'll pay our debt. Jesus is the better master. He frees us. And when we see that, when we see Jesus as the better master, more and more we want him to be on the throne of our heart and more and more we'll find freedom from slavery to sin. Because remember, everyone's controlled by something. We're, we're worshiping creatures. We all have a throne in our hearts. There will always be something reigning on that throne. It's either going to be God or it's going to be idols. And the only way to be free from the control of sin is to be under the control of the love of Christ. Take a look at this verse. This is really cool. Same author, Paul. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. We're always under the control of something. We're either under the control of sin or under the control of God. Something's reigning on that throne. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5, 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Guys, the love of Christ controls us. Seeing his love for you in the gospel alters your heart. It changes your wants. It changes your desires. It changes your loves. Jesus's love for us in the gospel actually makes us want to do the things he's commanded. Have you guys experienced that? The more you see the gospel, the more you see Jesus' love for you in the gospel through his cross and resurrection, the more you want to do what he says. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus knew this, obviously. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The more we see his love for us, the more we love him, and we actually want to do the things he's commanded. That's another way that Jesus makes the yoke easy and the burden light is that he changes our hearts so that his commandments aren't burdensome to us. They're something we actually want to do. Guys, why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we want to do the things he's commanded? I mean, he is the best possible master and his reign in us produces the best possible fruit. This is the amazing thing. You think about Jesus as the master. In Jesus, we have God, the real ultimate master of the world, and he became a slave for us. Jesus, the ultimate master, became a slave for us. Philippians 2.7 says that he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a doula, a slave, Right? Why did he do that? Why would God come and take the form of a slave? Well, he told us in Matthew 20, Jesus said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. This is God, okay? He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That Jesus came as a slave to set us free. Jesus was treated as a slave. You guys realize that like Judas sold him for a slave's price, 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was killed on a Roman cross, which is the way you kill slaves. Why did he come as a slave? He came as a slave because we were enslaved. We were enslaved to our sin. Jesus was trading places with us. Him who knew no sin, he took our place. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for our freedom with his body and blood. With his body and blood, he paid our sin debt the price to set us free. And when you hear that, don't you feel the love of Christ controlling you? Don't you just like feel the love of Christ controlling you? Doesn't it make you want to have him reign over your life? You know, you're like, I want that idol off that throne. That's Jesus' throne. You know, Jesus should be there. My savior should be there. Doesn't it make you want to obey him? Like when you're in your best gospel frame of mind, you want to obey him. 
Don't you want, like the Heidelberg Catechism says, don't you, doesn't it make you want to wholeheartedly and willingly be ready to live for him? You know, that you're wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him. You know what that is? That's the sound of a free heart. It's a sound of a heart that's free from the bondage of sin. That's the sound of a heart, like in verse 17, that's obedient, that you're obedient from the heart. And now you know what you need to do every day. You got to get your heart there. Okay? That's the right frame of mind. That's the right heart. And so what we need to do every single day to live in freedom from slavery to sin is to get our hearts controlled by Christ. And I don't know how you're going to do that, but you need to do it. You know, that's the first thing we need to do every day when we wake up. George Mueller said that his, the first order of importance every day was to get his heart happy in God. That was the first thing he needed to do when he woke up, get his heart happy in God. And that's what we need to do. We need to have our hearts controlled. And what that means is we got to somehow remind ourselves of the gospel, the goodness of Jesus, the goodness of who God is through his cross and resurrection so that our heart is the throne. It has Christ on it. Because if Christ is not on the throne of your heart, something else will be. And we know that. We know that. So I'll ask you the question that Jesus asked the paralytic by the pool. Do you wish to be well? That's how to be well, is to see Christ in the gospel and take hold of him. Let's pray. Father, we're, uh, it's amazing how our hearts go back and forth. And it's amazing how we can one moment be wholeheartedly willing and ready to do whatever you command. And then in the next moment, be completely stubborn to you and believe in the lies of sin. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to repent, that you would help us to turn quicker, or that we wouldn't spend so much time in that state, but we would quickly run to you at first signs of danger in our own hearts. And we just pray, Lord, that you would control our hearts by the love of Christ. We're so thankful that this is the way it is. We're so thankful that salvation is a gift, that it's a gift, that our judgment was wages, but the salvation we have in Christ is a gift. And I just pray for anyone that's here that's either trying to do it religiously on their own, they're trying to earn their way to God, I just pray that you break them of that. And they would trust in Christ alone. Or if there's anyone here that just really is having a hard time letting go of the sin that so easily entangles us, we just pray, Lord, that you would just shock them out of it by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, as we take communion... And as we worship you, Lord, we pray that you would be blessed by it. We pray that your heart will be blessed by your children gathered around your table to worship you. And we pray, Lord, as we pray for one another afterwards and fellowship together, Lord, we just pray that that would be something that you would enjoy, seeing your kids talking together, loving one another, encouraging one another, praying for one another. Thank you for making us a body together. You're so good, Lord. Best of all masters. Your service is freedom. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the ways that we um, allow the the love of Christ to control us each week is by taking communion. And as I was looking through some different passages this week, there's some different names for communion that you're probably familiar with, the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper or even the Breaking of Bread or Communion. And all of those are, are biblical, actually have roots in, in different passages. But I love this one. Uh, 
this term for what we're about to do, calling it communion. And it comes from 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul tells the church, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a communion? Uh, that word is, is a koinonia, it's a fellowship. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation or a communion in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. And as, as we're remembering the Lord's death, as we're remembering the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, we're participating. It's more than just talking about Christ's death for us. And it's more than just thinking about it. It's more than remembering we're actually participating as we physically take the bread and the cup as that bread and that cup becomes part of us we are not only remembering his death on our behalf but remembering that we're united with him right and doesn't that doesn't that allow his love to control us um, he also tells us paul tells us that in communion we're communing with one another that somehow we are united together as we come together in communion and we we remember that we're one body that we're one family that we're one church and i think as we do that, I'd like us to just stand together, just to show that unity, if you can, if you're able. So in communion, we remember the body that was broken for us because of our sin. We remember the blood that was spilled to forgive us of our sins. And if you are trusting in that sacrifice, in Jesus' sacrifice to cover your sin, we invite you to take the bread and the cup with us, and we trust parents that if your your kids are taking it that you've talked to them about what this means and then it's not just a snack at church but that it it is also participation it's communion uh, with christ communion reminds us that our sin those sins that we've been thinking about during these messages right in romans 6 that those sins are are what cause that carnage uh, at, at the cross right that blood to be spilt that body to be broken and yet the love of Christ at the cross. Uh, he gave himself to die for us. Communion reminds us that we are guilty and yet greatly loved, right? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. And Father, we are so thankful to be participants in your son's death. And we're, we look forward to being participants in his uh, resurrection, Lord. And just right now, I, I pray that you would be killing that sin that we have been enslaved to, that you would give us a better master, that his love would control us. We pray this all in his name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. 
If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.